Today's reading comes from Psalm 129. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do they say, nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Right, if you would have a seat this morning. I'm glad to see so many of you uh, return. Last week was kind of, I think, a challenging week. Uh, maybe for more uh, than some others, but uh, I'm really glad to have you back. Glad to have your trust uh, in the Word, uh, not, in, uh, not in the preaching necessarily of it, but what is here. We're going to be here in Psalm 129 this morning, so stay open there. But if we're being honest, this psalm uh, is uh, kind of difficult to interpret. What is it after? Uh, some parts of it feel a little odd to us. It's a uh, certain type of psalm. We'll talk about that here in one moment. But it, uh, it has some language that we don't always feel comfortable with. But one of the things that I feel like this psalm takes de- dead aim at is the uh, trying to create confidence in the Lord's people. And confidence is a tricky subject because uh, it's my belief that all of us at some level or another struggle with a certain amount of pride. Uh, Those of you who know me, have heard uh, from me, uh, know that I consider the foremost sin struggle of my life, the one that I uh, imagine that I will just be dealing with day in and day out for the rest of my life is pride. And and so as a result of that, I've become a little bit of a student of it, uh, both in myself and in other people, because it takes so many various forms. And what I've found is, is that there are several different types of pride that are actually uh, paradoxical in people. They're ironic, if you were, Uh, two in particular. And I'm not suggesting that everybody falls into one type or other of the pride, but I do think that there are two types of pride that we should take uh, kind of close notice of, especially because they are a little tricky to understand. One is a quiet kind of pride, and the other one's a loud one. But both of them, like I said, are paradoxical in nature. The first one, the quiet pride, is an internal narcissism. It's one that if you could look at somebody's heart, there is a war of pride kind of raging there. But if you look on the outside, again, paradoxically, you don't see it. It comes out, it expresses itself in approval-seeking, in people-pleasing. So on the inside, you would see raging volcanoes of pride, and on the outside, you see something that appears meek. And what that kind of prideful person does is makes themselves their own God and then invites people by way of meekness into uh, worshiping that God, Uh, you know, seeking for approval, seeking for other people to actually bolster them up or be pleased by them. I am my God, will you serve me? That's the first type of quiet kind of pride that I see in, uh, in myself and in many other people. The second one is a little louder. Uh, there is an internal, uh, not narcissism necessarily, but insecurity, self-criticality. There's a type of person that's pride expresses itself in terms of just unsureness internally. 
But by the time that it gets out of the person, it kind of tries to cover over those insecurities uh, with a lot of loud, boisterous kinds of things. So it's a person that's very assertive, very loud, very uh, projecting of power. So if you could look internally, you would see that indeed a person is very fragile, that they are in need of a lot of bolstering and confidence there, but by the time that it comes out, there's a harder shell where there is a pretend assurance that the person has. It's the, I am the great Oz, pay no attention to that weak person behind the curtain. So there are lots of different types of pride, but those are the two that I, uh, I see myself, I see inside of myself, and I see a lot of times in other people. And so what I would ask you this morning is to pay attention to it, to think about it. What type of pride do you struggle with? For both types of pride, uh, they really lead to an utter lack of confidence, Uh, They're kind of led out in like this just lacking of confidence, this lack of self-assurance on the inside, or uh, something that is totally self-focused on the inside and on the outside is lacking in confidence. So confidence is kind of the word for this morning. Both types of pride lead to an utter lack of true abiding confidence. So what happens is, is that when trials come upon the prideful and the arrogant, no matter what your brand is, that that lack of confidence is actually uh, chaotically combustible. You'll have a person that uh, wants to, on the outside, look very assured, very confident, and then when trials kind of make ruin of that person, everything is lost and you see people combust they flail, they, uh, they kick, they scream in the midst of not feeling like they're in control or that they've been found out, that that little person behind the curtain has finally been unveiled. For the other type of person that uh, just struggles with internal, uh, you know, looking at oneself all the time, self-assurance, but then by the time that they get out, when they find no people willing to please them, when they have a poor reputation, when they're insufferable at some times, and they've lost friends, there is just chaos that ensues. There's a lot of kicking and screaming that happens there. And all of it kind of comes out of a lack of true confidence. What is needed in the face of those kind of trials that reveal those things is real and true confidence. We need a steadfastness in the face of affliction, not a narcissistic neuroticism, but a humble confidence. And that is where I think that our psalm meets us this morning. Because what I think that this psalm is after is telling Christians to create a culture of confidence within a world of woes. We are actually to create a culture that includes all of us of confidence, true confidence, within a world of affliction and woes. That's where I think that the psalm takes us this morning. And this morning's psalm uh, breaks up rather nicely in uh, verses 1 through 3. We're going to look at those and we're going to discover that there is an endurance that is needed amidst affliction. By the time that we get to verse 4, we're going to see the Lord's liberation. That's kind of the second point that we'll hit this morning. And then by the time that we hit verses 5 through 8, we're going to discover that we are to learn how to hate haters. We are, lear- we are to learn how to hate haters this morning. So that's kind of the road that we're on this morning. But first, what we need to do is have some sort of context. 
This psalm here in front of us is an imprecatory psalm. It's on this road towards worship. We're going up towards worship still amidst these psalms of ascent. But this one in particular is a different kind of psalm than we've interacted with before. And frankly, it's one that feels very foreign to most of us. Because imprecatory psalms invoke judgment, calamity, and curses upon one's enemies or a nation's enemies. And that is something that is very uncomfortable in our day and age. Some of us even hear these words in the psalm and we're just like, are you allowed to say these kinds of things? How did this sneak into scripture? How am I to understand my role in understanding how these words impact and influence and inform and create confidence in me? Those are some of the questions that we have this morning. But I will tell you this, they might be foreign to us, but for our brothers and sisters around the world, for our brothers and sisters who have come before us, these are not foreign words. They're not abstract ideas. If you were a Christian in China this morning who was uh, worrying about people hearing your voice singing to the Lord and being thrown into prison for the rest of your life at best, this kind of psalm might feel like home to you. It might feel as though it speaks to a specific part of your heart, a specific context for you. If you were a Christian in Saudi Arabia who uh, faced the possibility of being thrown off of a building for professing Jesus Christ, you might read this psalm with different eyes. You might hear this psalm with different ears. And what I mean to say is, is that we need to understand that there is a context in which this is totally and completely assuring to Christians. But for us this morning, what we need to do is remember that this is a people, that the Jewish people, Israel, at this day and age, when they would have received the psalm, would have received it amidst a history of enslavement, would have received it in the midst of uh, uh, exile, being thrown into exile outside of your country. So these people would have been familiar with affliction. They would have understood what it was, they would have felt very at home talking about affliction, and that's our first point this morning, is enduring affliction. Christians are to endure affliction. It says this, verse 1, join me there, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly they afflicted me from my youth. It uses this word greatly to describe the kinds of afflictions that God's people had had to face. And it goes from being a personal thing where the psalmist, whoever wrote this, says, I've endured great affliction. And then he turns to Israel, the nation of Israel, knowing that this was going to be inspired word of God and turn into a psalm that God's people could rally around. It says, join with me now. Greatly have we endured affliction from our youth. Great are and great were the affliction of God's people. And you know what? It's okay to say so. A lot of us uh, think, uh, especially in our context, that maybe it's a little too much to make uh, you know, to make a great deal of the kinds of affliction that we face. Especially in today's day and age when we're not necessarily facing enslavement not a literal one anyway, when we're not facing things in this world that might be persecuting us in ways that might involve the taking of our lives, we feel like, well, I'm not al- I don't know if I'm really allowed to talk about the things in my life as affliction. The guys in my discipleship group a couple of weeks back actually talked about this. How do we talk about affliction in a day and age where we are comforted so much by the things that surround us, where we very rarely face affliction? And what I think that this psalm means to tell us is is that it's okay to talk about. 
It's okay to talk about. Surely by its existence as a psalm, it's saying it's okay to say that you have faced affliction. We need to have a little bit of perspective here and just know that if today government agents were to come in this room and actually uh, handcuff us, carry us off to prison, that that would actually be more in the context of Christianity for the rest of history than we experience right now. We would have understood that that was actually more uh, uh, more expected for a lot of our brothers and sisters. If we were to see a brother actually be beheaded, we would understand that that actually in the grand sweep of Christian history and redemptive history would not be a weird thing. That is actually the normative the day and age of uh, freedom, religious freedom that we live in, the ability to express and worship openly is actually not the norm for God's people. So that's where this psalm is actually meeting us this morning. And we know that Peter tells us, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial as though something strange were happening to you. And that's something that I think that this generation needs to hear. Not necessarily because I expect in the next few years for us to face open like public beheadings, but because I think that we do need to be the type of generation that is teaching our children to expect more persecution than we have faced. To actually foster and cultivate faith within our children so that they can teach their children that when they face affliction, that they have something to be confident in. So I'm going to be bold this morning and tell you that I actually think this psalm means to meet you somewhere. It means to meet you in the midst of your affliction, no matter how light and momentary that might be, but it actually means to meet you in the midst of this so that you can teach the next generation what is actually expected and normative. If they come up against something that they don't expect, they may flee Christianity forever, and we, of course, don't want that. So we actually meet this and know that there is nothing strange about persecution. But then there is some strange language here in the psalm. If you look at verse 2, it actually uses some very strange language. It says that the plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. Anybody, anybody talk like that? Of course we don't. It's not something that we talk about. Number one, most of us are so removed from our food sources, we're like, I don't even know what a furrow is. Don't even know how they go about the process of plowing now. In this day and age, they would have had an ox. They would have had literally a plow behind the ox using the force of the ox to dig up, to carve earth, to carve trenches in the earth. And what this psalmist is saying is is that the people that are wicked and that have brought affliction against him and God's people are doing the very same thing on his back. Is that literal? No, no, no. It's, it's figurative. It's to understand that there are wicked men out there that actually mean to plow into God's people, to carve into their backs some amount of affliction. But I think that it's using this terminology with a very specific purpose. It's using it because there is planting going on. There is a purpose in that affliction. The type of person that's willing to take up a plow and plow it through God's people is not merely wanting to inflict pain, they're trying to plant something. The type of person that is plowing into God's people, the enemy is plowing to plant, to plant seeds of pain, to plant seeds of marginalization, to plant seeds of doubt, to plant seeds of weakness and timidity. They are meaning to plant anything that will lead to a lack of confidence, not only in oneself, but more in God. 
That's the purpose of affliction, is to make you doubt your faith, to make you doubt a good God. So this enemy goes about the process of trying to plow into God's people and plant their seeds that are meant for their destruction. And the question is, what if what the enemy plant actually grows and is reaped in you? What we need to understand for God's people is that there is a need for endurance. There's a need for an endurance amidst affliction. We can't face affliction and immediately turn away. We can't be confronted with media sources that say that you are a fool if you believe something that the Bible says and immediately say, maybe they're right. Giving birth to sin, giving birth to doubt, allowing for that tilling to happen in your soul and for you to be carried off. We're going to talk about specifically the kinds of fruit that come out of that here in one moment. The question is, what if what the enemy plants grows and is reaped in you? The charge this morning is that you must endure. You must be steadfast in your faith. You must endure affliction, knowing that the affliction is intended to actually plant something in you and for you to remain steadfast, even in the midst of experience of affliction. Simply by the existence of Psalm uh, 129, it proves that one way that we can endure affliction is simply to name it simply to talk about it, simply to bear it together. Not to compare to previous generations, not even necessarily to compare to one another in our afflictions, but is simply just to talk about them. A lot of us don't talk about the kinds of affliction that we face. I know in this church that there are people that have been passed over for hires because you spent time in your office actually awkwardly cultivating a place where you could talk about your faith. I know that that's occurred. I know that there are people that have given up, uh, I mean, countless hundreds of hours of time to pour into God's people rather than your golf handicap. Now, that's a certain kind of affliction. I don't want to make that much of that, but you're giving of your time and you're facing the consequences of that. There are mothers in this room and fathers in this room that are giving their lives to their children, just like Jesus gave his life, his body for us. We're actually giving of our time, not to just mail it in on parenting, but to disciple, to raise up, to plow, to plant, to grow a beautiful, fruitful next generation. And that is an endurance of affliction if I've ever had one, okay? It's hard. Being parent is hard. There are so many different ways, even in the midst of this room, even amidst this uh, very cool generation, this, uh, this, this generation that allows for a lot of expression of belief in Jesus. There are lots of ways that we endure that kind of persecution, my children right now, uh, I, I think, have this uh, internal fear of missing out going on in their hearts. They hear that there are other children that are allowed to use their iPads whenever they want. And even my kids are enduring some amount of affliction because of the things that we believe. I couldn't hate them enough to let my youngest especially, just on an iPad, on Wi-Fi, anytime that I want. I know that that's a bold take, but I just couldn't do that. There's this idea of like fear of missing out in our children that they may not be able to like live out the things that they want to or be cool in the ways that they want to, go to the sleepovers that they want to. And so we actually have a certain amount of sacrifice and giving up that even extends into our children, but it's one that is meant for endurance. 
We as families, we as a family at City Church are meaning to endure affliction and to do it together. Let us name it, let us talk about it, let us bear under that burden together. There is a time to mourn and to weep. There is a time to name and to decry injustice. There is a time to pray and to write, to sing our sorrows. Let us do that together, City Church. Let us name the affliction that we endure. Let us do it boldly. Let us do it like the psalmist here. But let us only do it that we might know and understand that the Lord means liberation for us. That's the second point this morning. The Lord's liberation. Verse 4 says this, The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. Now, what I want to do is actually take that in two parts. There's two parts of that statement. They go together, but I want to take them apart so that we can put them back together. The Lord is righteous. What does that have to do with anything? It seems as though it's just been plopped down in the middle of the psalm and has nothing to do with the affliction, therefore. What I will tell you is, is that the Lord is righteous is the greatest news that we can hear in the midst of our afflictions. He sees us in our afflictions. He sees us in our trials. He sees us in the midst of persecution, and he intends to do something about it. Why? Because he is righteous. He can't look at wrong things going on and turn his back. He can't turn a blind eye to real and true affliction. He will do something about it. The psalmist is saying that it is in the Lord's nature, his very nature, his righteousness to do something about the wrong in this world. He cannot let it go on. Though the Lord has and does allow for affliction to befall his beloved, he is going to do something about it. And for those of us who are in this room who have endured various types of trauma, for those of us who have been afflicted, and when we hear about affliction in God's word, it's not some like arbitrary thing. It's something that actually has hooks in us. You've endured abuse You've endured neglect. You've endured unkindness. You've been uh, neglected at uh, your job. People don't pay attention to you because they think that you're weird. And you've been ostracized. That kind of trauma goes deep for us. For those of us who have been in marriages that are neglectful or abusive, what you need to hear is that the Lord cares. He is righteous and he intends to do something about it. In a moment, maybe not in this precise moment, Maybe he has a purpose for allowing us to endure persecution and affliction, but he will, he will inevitably, he will eternally do something about the wickedness that is in this world. Why? Because he is righteous. But then it goes on to say something else that flows out of his righteousness. It says, the Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. Now, we have to understand something here. The cords are something that were used to bind up, to tear down. There may have been metal shackles that would have been made at that time, but they would have been expensive to make. And so it would have been a lot cheaper and a lot more prevalent for people, for wicked people, to actually bind people up, to use cords, to actually tie people down. And the cords were intended for a purpose. They were intended by God's wicked enemies to actually imprison his people, to imprison you through affliction. And what this verse says is, is that the Lord goes cutting the cords of the wicked. 
Now, it took me a couple of times reading this verse to even get what it was after. I didn't necessarily understand, like, okay, so he's cutting the cords of the wicked, so the wicked are there, and he's cutting their cords. It took me a little while to understand that what God is after here is liberation. When the wicked come in and try to bind you, when the sinful world tries to tie you up, when Satan tries to come in and enslave This psalm says that the Lord has already, past tense, cut the cord of the wicked. What good news is there that there is liberation from these things? The wicked enemies of God try to enslave and imprison you, and God, you may know, is cutting those cords. God in his righteous nature has already cut the cords of your bondage, and you are liberated. But from what kind of affliction? You might be tempted to say, I've never been in uh, bonds. I've never had cords tied around me. I think that we're meant to understand this not just as a physical affliction, not just as physical cords wrapped around us, but a spiritual affliction, a spiritual binding, a spiritual enslavement. Sin and Satan have afflicted you. They have bound you up. They have put you in prison. The prison of personal pride is one of the things that we've talked about already this morning. And the plowman of self is planting seeds of pride. And what we need is liberation. What we need is a liberator to break those bonds. I want for you to turn with me over to Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 19. What we're going to hear is Jesus' own personal mission statement. We're going to hear what Jesus came to do. Jesus walks into a synagogue in his hometown, and he takes out this scroll from the prophet Isaiah, and it was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, and he preaches this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And they saw this beautiful statement of liberation, and they go on to ask him a few questions, and he uh, insults them. All of their sensibilities, all of their cultural sensibilities, and they were so taken in by what he said about the liberty to the captives, but were so offended by his personal affront to them that they immediately set about the task of throwing him off of a cliff. That's what they wanted to do with the man. Here this man comes and proclaims liberty to captives. What we need to understand is that we are found in the bondage of sin, but there is one who is a liberator who intends to come and to liberate us, and he has things to say to us. Let us not reject him. Let us not set about the process of throwing him off of the cliffs in our minds and in our hearts. Let us pay attention to him as our great savior, as our liberator. Jesus does this. He accomplishes this liberty to captives, this liberty to those who are oppressed by receiving the full weight of our afflictions. Do you know this? In Matthew chapter 27, it says that Jesus is scourged. 
That word there is really specific. It's not used very many other places in Scripture. And what had happened is, is that Jesus was brought before Pilate because the Jews could not legally put him to death. And so they asked for him to be put to death. And uh, he had a problem with it and was, didn't want any part of it. And he washed his hands, but then had Jesus scourged. Do you, want, do you know what that word means? We're actually told, and it's clarifying in other Gospels, that he is actually whipped, that the back is whipped until flesh begins to hang off of it. He is whipped with a cat of nine tails. This might sound familiar. There are furrows that are dug into the back of our Savior. He has endured affliction. If you think that you are enduring or have endured affliction, or maybe if you look at history and you go, I know that I haven't endured anything like past generations, what you need to understand is that even those past generations, even the Christians in China, anybody who has endured persecution or been martyred would point at Jesus Christ and say, he is the one who endured the most persecution. What we're told actually in uh, Isaiah 53 is that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquity, and by his stripes we are healed. You see that in Psalm 129 there are whispers of the gospel. There is one who is coming who will endure all of the affliction, and the enemy will actually plow into his back so that you could be saved. By his wounds, by his stripes we are healed. When Jesus is beaten with a rod, when he is pierced in his side, when nails are driven through his hands, he is facing all of the affliction that we would have faced because of our sins. The gospel is that Jesus healed us when his enemies plowed his back, making long the furrows. So how are we to understand how this gospel, this great gospel, this gospel of liberation, This liberty-giving gospel from the Lord, how are we to understand how that interacts with the rest of this psalm, which begins to pronounce that kind of judgment on people that begin to bring affliction? How, in a word, are we to hate haters? How are we to hate haters? How are we to understand our place in verse 5 where it says, May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turn backwards. And let us know that this is an exclamation. You can see it there in the, uh, you can see it there because of the exclamation mark, but you can see it in the Hebrew in the way that it is exclamatory. It's actually shouting this May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turn backwards. Are we praying for shame and rejection of others? Are, are we as Christians to look at this psalm and be guided into prayer of shame and rejection for those who are enemies of God? And I want to say boldly this morning, yes, but maybe not the way that you think. Maybe it's precisely the way that you think, but I think that there are two ways that we kind of do this. First of all, we trust God's Word and don't think that anything in it is unhelpful, is is, uh, unwise, is incorrect, unrighteous. So we see this here, and we have to at some point do something with it. It says, Those who hate Zion. What we really need to understand is who and why. 
Those who hate Zion are in the context here of the enemies of God and the persecutors of his people. If we're to ask the question, who are these haters? We are to understand them as those who bring affliction and those who plow into God's people. So it's not just a general kind of wickedness that's being talked about here. It's those people that are moving against God in his purposes and moving against God in his people. That's the context that we have to understand here this morning. Those are the enemies. And they tried to plant pain and anger and malice. They tried to break confidence in the Lord. But what this psalm says is that the Lord reaps righteousness anyway. That which you meant for evil, God is using for good. Those plowers come along and they plant uh, seeds and affliction in our back and God uses it to grow a ripe harvest, a righteous harvest. God is going to use the affliction of the saints to actually yield something, to produce fruit, and we can have some amount of confidence that he's not only doing it, but that what he is doing is actually good. Praise God for that. On the other hand, They are not planted in a field. We see in verse 6 that these people that have gone around uh, plowing into our backs are like the grass of a housetop. Now, that's a strange thing. We don't see a lot of grass on housetops, right? We don't have the kind of like stone, uh, you know, centuries-old kind of structures that have like uh, weak, feeble grasses kind of growing up in the gutters. But that's the idea that we get is that there's a very little bit of sand and, you know, maybe some kind of dirt and that the birds have brought some kind of seed and it's fallen there and a little shoot of grass comes up on a housetop but it withers. What we need to understand is that these people that bring affliction, the wicked people are like grass on a housetop. They're not out in the field. They're not going to be uh, blessed. We actually see here at the very end of this psalm that, um, that uh, there are people that go by gr- fields of grass, fields of, uh, of, of wheat and things like that, and actually exclaim God's blessing. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Why is that? Well, because in an agrarian society, one that would have uh, faced in really harsh realities the, uh, the, the uh, famines that were all too regular because of a lack of rain, you had God's people passing by fields of, uh, of, of grains and things like that, and they would bless the fields. They would say, this is an indication of God's blessing, his provision. They would say, bless that field. But here in the psalm, these people are rising up out of gutters, they're withering away, and nobody who passes by them says, blessed be you. They are no part of Jehovah's harvest. Those who pass by do not say, blessing of the Lord upon you, no blessing in the name of the Lord. How do we understand this? How do we understand it? It's very strange. It's very strange to hear this kind of language coming out of a psalm. It's especially difficult when we take a look at all of these and we say, may all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backwards. And for those of us who have sorted past, especially where we literally curse God and his kingdom. Or for those who, of us who live out daily in sin that pronounces some sort of curse on God in his kingdom, we feel a little reticent. Why? Because Romans chapter 5 verse 10 says, when we were enemies, when we were enemies, enemies, when we were wicked, when we were apart from God's harvest, his bountiful harvest, what did he do? He reconciled us to God. 
While you were still sinners, Christ died for us. So how do we understand this? When we are enemies of God, when we were enemies who were made into sons and daughters, and when we are made sons and daughters, Jesus then actually commands us to love our enemies, and then we're not just seeing that that's something that he's saying because it sounds nice. He actually goes and he dies for his enemies. How are we to understand this? How are we to understand it when Jesus says, bless those when others revile you, when they persecute you for my name's sake? When Jesus says, turn your other cheek, how are we to understand how to hate haters? And I've got it kind of boiled down into one sentence for us, just to try to make it as clear as I can. God always makes ruin of his enemies. God always makes ruin of his enemies. But remember how I told you to uh, hold it with two hands? What did Saul do? Saul persecuted the church. He was an enemy of the church. He stood by and gave his vote, his assent at the stoning of Stephen. He goes and he pursues uh, papers and the ability to go to Damascus and to persecute God's people. If there ever was an enemy of God's people, certainly it was Saul who was breathing murderous threats. And then Jesus makes ruin of that enemyship. By showing up on this road and saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Why do you persecute me? I haven't done anything to you. You're doing it to my people. You are afflicting my people. You are murdering my people. Why are you persecuting me, Jesus says to Saul, in order to make ruin of the fact that he is an enemy? God ruins his enemies. And he does so gloriously by coming and dying for some of them and inviting them into a kingdom forever and making them sons and daughters and promising them a, uh, a, an eternity without affliction at all because it was all poured out on Jesus. He makes ruin of his enemies and for some of us it is glorious. But we also have to hold in tension the fact that God does make ruin of all of his enemies In Revelation, we see that uh, God commands the grapes to be harvested and there's an angel that comes with a sickle and takes all of the clusters of grapes and throws it into the wine press of his wrath. I mean, you don't hear much about this wine press of wrath. You don't see or hear very many people exclaim that when there is those grapes that are trodden in the wine press of his wrath, that all of the blood that came out came up to the horse's bridle and covered over, I think, like 1,600 stadia. Sinners in the hands of an angry God is a fearful thing. And what we need to understand is that God makes ruin of his enemies. And he does some for glorious, noble, kingdom-minded, eternal purposes. And he does so with others to punish sin. And we have to hold those things together. We have to say so. The older I get, the less patient I am with my own self-righteousness and my own self-confidence. Uh, the, the older I get, the more uh, kind of impatient I get with uh, selfishness, not just in me, but in others. Why? Because I see just the neglect of that sin to meet up with reality. The older that I get, the more thankful I am for uh, the grace of God, the more that I love his righteous judgments. Why? Because I continue to encounter sin. I grew up in a place where there was very much poverty. 
And, and I think that when you do that, when you have to snake your way through rice fields and you see people that are living homeless and on a day-to-day basis, you encounter affliction on a day-to-day basis, you begin to embrace more and more the judgments of God and not see them as a negative thing. But that's just me. I've never been in a country where uh, I faced persecution on a daily basis because of my casting of lots with Jesus. I've never lived in that. But I imagine that if you do, you love the judgment of Jesus. I I try to imagine, I heard a pastor say this this week, I try to imagine being one of the widows of a person that Paul oversaw uh, uh, dying and then a few short years later have this man come and preach to me. I, I try to put that into context and there just has to be a marriage of understanding the greatness and the glory and the love and the mercy, but also the righteous wrath and judgment of God. We have to have confidence in both. So how do we hate haters? We pray for them. We pray for their ruin. Am I saying that like intentionally, provocatively? Yes. We want to see sinners ruined. We want to see sinners actually ruined in the midst of their sin that they might come to know the everlasting love of a father and the grace of Jesus Christ and the fellowship in the spirit and the fellowship with the saints. We want to see sinners ruined. We pray for it. But here's, here's a hard thing. In the midst of real affliction, in the midst of persecution, we also run to imprecatory psalms We use the discernment of the Spirit, and we cry out amidst these things, God, would you make ruin of sin? Would you make an end of sin? Would you judge sin? Would you see the injustice that is done here on this earth and do something about it? And then in the midst of both of those things, we have to have confidence that God can do it, that he means to do it, that he is righteous. There is this verse back up here in uh, verse 3 or verse 2, that says, greatly have they afflicted me in my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. I see a lot of lack of confidence in this church. And and unfortunately, I think that so much of it has to do with just a self-focus, a self-awareness, just a, a persistent, a consistent thought and thinking of self, and it just leads to this like chaotic, narcissistic, messy, jumbled mess of Lacking confidence. What I want for you to get out of this psalm is is that the Lord is righteous, that afflictions will not prevail against you because the Lord has made ruin of sin. Sin must come to an end. And of that, be humbly confident. Be humbled by the cross that it took the death of God himself to save you from your sin. Be confident in Christ that he resurrected, which we will be joyfully celebrating this week. Christian, fight neurotic narcissism and help create a culture of true confidence in a world of woes here at City Church. Christians cannot be prideful, unconfident haters because the Lord Jesus has liberated us to be humble, confident lovers. That's the kind of confidence that we are to have, and that means that we can endure affliction without surprise and without retaliation because we must pray for the salvation of our enemies, and we must also, hand in hand, pray wrath against oppressors and be eternally confident in Christ. Let me pray for that.
God and Father, you are doing and have done a mighty work. Lord, you started at the very beginning, your story of redemption. It led all the way through the most afflicted one, the man of sorrows. Father, he came and he died that uh, we may never face affliction in eternity. And Father, we put our hope in that justification. We know that it is true. But Lord, we have all the more confidence that at the end of this week, at the end of this celebration week, that we get to look into an empty tomb and know that Jesus Christ has risen, that he has risen indeed, and of that we can be completely certain and confident, knowing that he has prevailed against all affliction and that we face an eternity with you of confident love. Father, I pray that City Church would be a taste of that this week that as our people disperse out into the uh, various boroughs of the city and the uh, places in their office and um, you know, uh, in the universities and in uh, Mother's Day Out programs and in date nights, and uh, Lord, that in all of it, you would give a great sense of confidence in our people. Lord, would they not be confident in you? Would they not be confident in their reputation amongst others? Would they be confident because you have purchased them? We don't want confidence in ourselves or in other people. We want confidence in you. Father, I pray that you would make us that kind of church. Lord, as we confidently turn our attention towards the singing of praise and worship to you and the taking of the bread and the wine and communion, Lord, let us know that it is finished. And Lord, that those who are wicked will not prevail against us. Father, we pray all of these things in the mighty name of Jesus.